Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of The Linsider. Today, I have actor, writer, producer, May Melanson with me. May is a good friend, and I'm going to bring her on shortly. Before I do, some interesting things came out earlier this week. So today is May 20th, and earlier this week, on May 18th, the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative collaborated with sociologist Nancy Wang Yuan, and together they put out a study that the title of the study is The Prevalence and Portrayals of Asian and Pacific Islanders Across 1,300 Popular Films. So what they did in the study is they looked at the top 1,300 movies from 2007 to 2019. So that's a total of inclusive of 13 years. And across those 13 years, here are few interesting tidbits that they found. So across those 13 years overall, the percentage of total API characters was just 5.9%. This is much lower than the U.S. population of API, which is at 7% currently as of the latest 2020 census, and also of the world population. So the world population is approximately 60% Asian. And that's just characters, so speaking characters. That's 5.9% in 1,300 movies from 2007 to 2019. But if we look at leads, and they also included co-leads, they're really rare in films. So of these 1,300 films across more than a decade, there were only 44 API lead or co-leads. So only 44 Asian or Pacific Islander leads or co-leads. And of these 44 films, 14 of these roles were Dwayne Johnson or The Rock. So The Rock accounts for a third of the lead roles that are given to Asian and Pacific Islander lead. And let's see, some of the other interesting facts and tidbits is that, let's see here, oh, they go into some of the creators right behind the scenes. So remember, speaking roles in films, 5.9%. Lead or co-lead, just 40 in 1,300. So, I mean, that's pretty abysmal. That then we look at directors, just 3.5%. So producers, 2.5%, so even lower. Casting directors, 3.3%, and API creatives, just 2.9%. So pretty terrible figures across the board. And there are additional findings of this report, you know, that API women are overly sexualized on screen. So there's some details here. You can read the report. I will link to it in the show notes. And let's see if there's anything else. Pretty much also there are no or very few studios that actually have great API representation. So no studio really excels at it, but 
it looks like from the data that perhaps some of the newer studios like Netflix and Amazon, they may do a slightly better job, but the data, you can take a look, it's all very, very low. There are no film, film executives who are at the chairman level, there are very few at the executive levels at all, very low single digit percentages. And also another interesting finding that I found is that the study found that API characters die often on screen. So it says 25% of those few Asian roles, those characters died by the end of the film and 42% experienced some sort of disparagement. So, you know, again, kind of highly, well, not kind of, highly problematic. So I will link to the report. Thank you to the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative and Nancy Wang Yuan for putting this report together. It is so detailed. detailed. There's 47 pages of just treasure trove and data. And I tweeted about this earlier this week. I said, this is why this data, even before this report came out, I knew of this just from my experience as an executive in the industry, as a producer working on films, and in the last you know, year and a half starting Story Arch. That is why I started Story Arch Pictures, because I knew that our voice was not heard, our stories are not being told, even when you have Asian Pacific Islander characters in the story, they're not quite authentic. A lot of them are problematic or stereotyped. And the API diaspora is very complex, quite large. You know, even though it's just 7% of the U.S. population, that's t- it's the fastest growing and has some of the most disposable income, like purchasing power. But even that is a very nuanced discussion because also Asian Pacific Islanders are also some of the poorest. So while API communities, some of them are quite, have quite large or strong purchasing power, a lot of folks are in poverty. So, you know, in terms of poverty percentages, API community actually makes up a huge percentage of that community in poverty. So a lot to unpack, a lot of work to do, and it's, it's, it's very important that this data is codified and is available and is out there and people can look at it and we can point to it. So I encourage you to go check out this report. There are summaries. I will also link to some of the tweets that the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative put out because they have some of the key findings summarized. So if you don't have time to read 47 pages, you can look through the charts and read some of the tweets. And besides that, I want to say I'm going to start wrapping up, I think, season one of The Linsider. This is episode 11, like I said. I think I'm going to try to go for a few more. I have another one recorded, and I have a couple other guests that I'm working to book. So just wanted to let you guys know, I've really enjoyed this process starting out on March 1st. I just put it together and it has blown me away in terms of the product, the conversations, and also the audience that's out there. I love hearing from you guys. And thank you for those that have supported the show along the way. 
And whether it's following on social media or listening to the podcast, or even some folks have donated. And I really appreciate all of that. As I wrap up season one in another couple episodes, I have some thoughts and ideas for season two. But if you have also some thoughts that you would like to see for the next season of the podcast, please let me know. Really welcome your feedback and your support. Okay, so without further ado, I am going to bring on May. And before I do, I want to just let you know a little bit about her. May is a cross-cultural creator. She grew up in many countries around the world. As an actor, she's been in shows like The L Word, CSI, The Affair, and multiple indie films. And she's also been in, had parts in studio movies like X-Men 3, Pathology, and Rush Hour. She has also done close to 100 commercials worldwide. She's had a, an amazing career. As a writer, she co-wrote an indie film called American Romance in 2014. And she has different films and TV projects set up at production companies. And she has also produced and wrote various PSAs and short films, including a PSA starring comedian Todd Glass for Glisten that was covered by the Huffington Post and Upworthy, among other outlets. I have links to May's social media in the show notes, and I'm really excited for you to listen to our conversation. May, she grew up and traveled around the world, and that's something that I really valued in terms of the discussions and conversations we had. Because so often when Asia or other cultures are covered from an American perspective, a lot of times it is so stereotyped or simplified or dumbed down. And if you travel a bit more, you will see that, you know, actually there's so much more in common. That sounds silly and simplistic to have to say, but sometimes that is true. And the understanding of different cultures, I think, is quite low in the West. And so travel a bit more, make some friends, talk to people, just enjoy and, and, you know, get to know folks. So I am really happy to bring on May. You will enjoy our conversation. So here goes. All right, welcome to another episode of The Linsider. Today, we are recording on May 4th, so happy Star Wars Day. I have in the studio with me, May, (laughs) May Malikon. Did I say that right, by the way? It's actually May song, but that's okay. We won't get um, too too, too picky about it. I wanna wanna know how to pronounce it. It's my mom's last name. It's Melanson, so it's uh, May Melanson. So it's uh, like the C is an S, it's a deal, so. Uh, But you know, you can't put on your license, you can't put a Cedil on your license, so they just put a C, so it's a common, it's a common mistake, acceptable. Interesting, okay, well, good to know. And yeah, you need to teach people how to say your name correctly. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, we're going to butcher it. Well, welcome, May. May is multi-talented, cross-cultural creator. I know her because we are working on a project where she is writing a feature film musical 
that may you come from a background mm -hmm. of modeling, acting, writing, uh, producing. So there's a little bit of all of that and you're, you, you are doing a lot of things. So I guess to kick things off, could you just sh tell everyone in your words a little, a little about, um, yourself, who you are and where you come from? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. I've been excited to come on your show because I've been listening to the different episodes and I've been learning so much about people. And I think you've covered so far so many different facets. And I'm and I really look forward to seeing what else, what other guests are on the show. But I love talking about other people. Sometimes it can be a little more difficult for me to talk about myself, which is strange because I am an actor and I've been a model and before that, I wanted to be a singer and, you know, it's, yeah, it's been an interesting road for me, but I, I guess I would, to, to tell a little bit about myself, I would describe myself as a third culture kid, perhaps, yeah. you know, by the common definition of a TCK, because I spent a significant part of my developmental years in cultures other than my parents' culture. And I developed a sense of relationship with each of these cultures and countries that I lived in. And I also have half brothers and sisters. You know, some of my older brothers are are full Chinese. And then my younger, uh, my younger siblings are half American. Well, my mom's French and my stepdad's American. So it's it's been an interesting way to try to assimilate into the U.S. Like I am an American now, but I I feel like I've always identified more with, you know, Asian cultures because I lived there till secondary school age, you know, like high school age. So, yeah, it's uh, so just a little bit about my background. My biological dad is Chinese, but his maternal grandmother was Japanese, which yeah. has always been a very strange conversation in the family. It's always like, and she's Japanese and these are the things we like about her. But there was, you know, I didn't understand that, you know, there's this 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 conflict, this inherent conflict that's been going on. It's really tragic. And even to the point where sometimes my dad will be like, that's the Japanese part of you, you know, like, <laughs> it's, which it's, it's very possible. And, and it's interesting because my stepdad is American and his business actually was in Japan for almost 40 years. So he speaks mm. fluent Japanese. He speaks some Mandarin. My mother, who's French, speaks some Japanese. Well, she she speaks Japanese, very funny, but it's, and she does speak a little Mandarin. And so we, we, we have this very, you know, multicultural experience where it was always hard for me to define, like when someone says, where are you from? Right. Mm -hmm. you no. Know, and I know a lot of people here are American. They say, I'm an American. I'm Chinese, but I'm a Chinese American. For me, I'm like, it's such a complex question. Where did you go to school? Oh, you know, I, was in a boarding school in Singapore. I was in Japan. I was, you know, like it's been, you know, kindergarten when I was in France when I was a little kid. So it's kind of like this yeah. like, hard for me to define. And I'm, and you know, getting to the point now where I'm like, I can explain a little bit about myself and I can leave it as that, you know. But yeah, so I grew up, I would say the majority of my childhood was in Japan, a little bit in Korea. Singapore, and we had a lot of spans in Taiwan as well. So, wow. and then a little bit in Europe. So, yeah. And for me, that was completely normal, right? So, you know, studying on planes, you know, and learning probably from traveling a lot, 
know we understand the world a lot. My parents are very spiritual people and they really believe in the good of humanity. They were involved in a lot of nonprofits and they they really had this desire to help people. You know, sometimes their desire to help people would come above their own needs a lot, you know? And it was an interesting, you know, even though they were businessmen, both my stepdad and my, my biological dad, they both really love helping people. It's, it seems to be part of their nature, you know? Mm. So yeah, I, 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 I'm very grateful for a lot of my upbringing, but I definitely find it something that's been hard to, you know, explain perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, you know, part of the reason why I started this podcast was very simple. I just wanted to get to know my friends better. And so that explanation, we're just five minutes in, was amazing because mm -hmm. I learned so much about you and I've completely thrown the script off of like out of what I was going to ask you. I have other questions now, but also I wanted to, you know, as I do in promoting the podcast, I say, I want to talk about entertainment, the entertainment industry from a cross-cultural and interdisciplinary way. And you are in just what you said in your background, a perfect example of that, even going to the roots of your family. I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you after what you said is about this concept of being third culture, a uh, third mm -hmm. culture kid, because we haven't discussed that on my podcast yet. You're going to be, this I think is going to be the 11th episode. And I think that's something that you and I know the mm -hmm. concept of a third culture kid, but I don't mm -hmm. think it's very common. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? the concept of the third culture kid, your understanding of third culture, like what it means to you. Right. Right. I think what it means to me when it was first explained to me was this idea that you're an amalgamation of different cultures. And I think, you know, I was reading this thing the other day. I don't know if it was in the New York Times. I was just flipping through stuff and someone was talking about how they come to the States and, you know, they become a citizen and then they vote and then they have, you know, they pay taxes. There's all these things that define who they are as an American, but that doesn't really mean that's how they feel inside. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and then this man went on to talk about how he definitely feels very Chinese still, and he's proud of that. And he's not trying to, you know, and I think we were talking about the diaspora, like he feels that, he loves being here and he loves being American, but he also feels very close to the homeland and he doesn't have any shame in that. And I think for me, it's interesting because I feel really an affinity to Chinese culture. I feel an affinity to Japanese culture. I feel, and, and it's funny, even in my mind sometimes when I'm, you know, trying to think of home, it gets very, it's, it's this mix. And it's something that I used to not be ashamed of, but I wasn't able to ever put my foot down like, no, this is what I am because I'm a mixture. So I think it definitely gives me a unique perspective, but a third cultural kid in, you know, a lot of military kids are probably mm. uh, third culture kids. And it's interesting because, you know, I don't know who it was, but someone was in Germany. They were born in Germany on the base. And I think they were this African-American actor and people were saying, oh, you're not German because you were, you know, you're African-American. He goes, yes, but I am also German because I grew mm -hmm. up, right? So, and his parents, interesting, 
interesting enough, were from like Haiti or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, it's like, what are you exactly? And that's kind of what the third culture is. It's like, you're a little bit of this, you're a little bit of that, but you're also this and that's okay. And it's what you identify with, I suppose, you know? And and what, what's interesting also is I was born in the Philippines. My father has a lot of businesses in the Philippines. So it's part of my culture. And I love the Philippines. I've worked there. I've shot films there. I've mm-hmm. I've done commercials there, you know? And it's, there's such a beautiful people and identify with them as well, you know, as because I was born there and it's, it's beautiful and the people are just amazing. That's a long way of saying what my definition of being third culture kid is. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking, you know, when I was in Singapore for a second, I was in a boarding school there and there were a lot of kids that were British. They're, they were half Asian and they were British and they were their mothers were from Indonesia. And then mm-hmm. some of the kids, their parents were Australian. And we were all there and some of them spoke, you know, fluent Chinese, Mandarin, you know, some of them Cantonese and it's that for us all felt very normal. And then you mm-hmm. come to the U S and people are like, you're white or you're, you're Asian. There's nothing in between. How, how are you right. speaking English? Like that kind of right. thing, you know, of course that was like 20 something years ago and a lot has changed, I think for the better. But there are still those stigmas, you know, it's like you can't be Asian because your mother is blonde with blue eyes. But why mm-hmm. do you look Asian? Like, you know, it's there's still that I still get that if I'm in a supermarket sometimes like, oh, you speak English so well. And I'm like, oh, thank you. You know, I'm still getting that in Los Angeles. Right. So yeah. it's yeah. And I think it's it's important to talk about this because one of the things as I get to know, I, I consider myself. I guess also third culture as well, because even and even though I grew mm-hmm. up in the States and in mm-hmm. the Bay Area in San Jose, when my parents moved here from Taiwan, we basically like we have our Taiwanese bubble. And so even though I grew up in California, my parents had a very Taiwanese bubble in California, in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So it was very different than if I was just, you know, some like, American kid, right? Like, or, mm-hmm. you know, or even like a second generation Asian American. Yeah. And then I spent a lot of time in Taiwan. And the more mm-hmm. I understand the history of just history in general, but you'll realize experiences that I've had or the experience that you've had, it's quite common historically. Like, maybe yeah. it's not the majority, but you see mm-hmm. it all around. It's just that perspectives from people like us haven't really been passed down or written about and people think it's such a curiosity right or a a thing that's different and other and while it is unique and pretty awesome like it's just part of you know who we are as humans as a society as well so right. i'm glad that you're sharing all this Right. I mean, even to piggyback on what you're saying about, you know, the, the mixtures, you know, the diasporas, like Taiwan was, you know, had the Dutch there for a long time, right? The, mm-hmm. the Dutch occupied, or it wouldn't be occupied. They, they settled there or whatever. Yep. And a lot of people don't know about that. And if you think about how many Taiwanese possibly have a mixed ethnicity, you know, we don't know. And in Japan too, you know, there's actors that you see and you're like, they're like, oh, my family was 
such, but it's not something people are talking about all the time, you know? So I think, you know, what you experience culturally is something that is your own, is your own, you know? And we, it's all valid, you know? And, and these stories, like you, you, we see a lot, of, and I don't think it's anyone trying to just stereotype people. It's just that the stereotypes seem to stand out more because there's more of them, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And that's the point where we have to talk about our stories or talk about ourselves or share the narratives so that that perspective is also more commonplace. Mm -hmm. So then the stereotypes being what they are, and maybe they're necessary sometimes as a, as a shorthand in communication, those stereotypes start to change and evolve and feel different. One of the things that you mentioned that struck me as you were telling me about how, just how many places you've lived in, like that's a lot for a childhood. What was that like for you? Cause I guess you said that it's almost normal because that's what you grew up knowing. But in terms of, you know, feeling at home somewhere or making friends, how do you think that that sort of very global upbringing shaped you? Yeah, you know, I think in retrospect, the way you look at it is different than what you're experiencing at the time, right? So my parents are, they're very communicative, like as in everything was mm. a lesson in life, like everything we did, everything was a lesson, everything in fact was a moral lesson. Like, you know, you, you talk to someone at the airport and if you're disrespectful to one of the guards, my mom and dad would be like, well, this is a good opportunity for you to learn how to be more respectful. And it's also a good time for you to practice, you know, speaking Japanese, go mm. over to him. And, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, there was always that kind of interaction. But in regards to friends, you know, I have long, lifelong friendships. And it's a lot of the kids, like, I don't know what it was. We were able to keep in touch probably because we shared such a similar history, kind mm -hmm. of. And I do remember that there were times when I would really miss I would miss people or I would miss school. But I also remember like getting to a new school and being so uncomfortable because I was very shy. Like I, I wasn't a talker. I was, I was painfully shy. And a lot of the kids that we were with were either Australian or American or British. And it was like, it was just a lot but I also remember constantly being excited because they all had this stuff from their own countries that they brought, whether it was like, you know, style or first hearing about Michael Jackson or, mm -hmm. you know, these things that they had gotten from their home country. And that was all really interesting. So when we moved, like move, but then we would come back, like, for example, if, if my dad worked for, he was a translator and my stepdad and he also would work with different businesses in consulting and he we would come back to where we would so it would just be like for a couple months we would go somewhere and be over there and then we would come back to our home base in japan mm. usually and so it wasn't it i know i don't know how to explain it wasn't as dramatic as you would think and when i talk to mm. military kids they're like oh yeah that was my life 
Uh, yeah, I did the yeah. same thing. We were in Germany, then we were in Korea, then we were, and you know, you just kind of get that rhythm. I noticed that with I think I think kids, I think it just depends on a personality. I liked it. I loved flying. You know, I am really close to my brothers and sisters. We had a really good relationship, so we really bonded over these trips. You know, it mm. was yeah, it was. I, I mean, I have good memories. So it's yeah, and I think it definitely informed my career choices, right? So, mm. you know, even my brothers and sisters who most of them have degrees in business, they travel and they work all over. They're all over the place. You know, I have a sister that lives in Dubai. I have a brother that's in England, you know, and, and I have another brother that goes back and forth to Hong Kong. So it's like, I think we mm. just kind of kept up what our parents, and then I've worked all over the world, you know, I've shot in Singapore and Hong Kong and the Philippines and Japan and Canada and Mexico and France and England. I mean, it's, it's kind of, for me, transitioning into this business where you're filming everywhere felt completely normal. Like when other people be like, oh my gosh, we're shooting in this strange place. And I was like, oh, just get off the plane. You just go and you go to sleep. Like it just feels, oh, I'm jet lag, big deal. You know, so that's a positive of it. Did I miss people? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, I would, mm -hmm. I would miss friends. But don't people do that anyway? You know, people move schools and they miss their friends when their parents yeah. move. And isn't that part of life in a way? I don't know. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned the career and where you are. I guess I want to transition a little bit to that. And I know you as a phenomenal writer, but you've done so much more in addition to that. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how did you get into the, whether it's the, whatever you want to call it, the entertainment industry, how did you get into the industry? Yeah. So, wow. You know, I wanted to be an attorney. That was actually, <laughs> that was actually the route I was going in school. Was, uh, that was my original plan, but I also mm. wanted to be a singer. My mom, my mom was a singer and she was oh. a really classically trained opera singer and she was in a band. She joined a band. She didn't do opera. That's, she joined a band in the late seventies and before I was born. And she has had a couple hit songs in Asia, which kind of floated into obscurity. But when I was doing press over there, one of the reporters actually played it. Uh, they were like, oh, this is your mom's song. And I was like, that's my mom. I mean, she was really young. She was like 21. Wow. So I don't think she, she told me, she's like, oh, we got totally ripped off. We did a gene advertisement and that was it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> But from that, you know, the, the love for music was something that has always been ingrained in me. And when it comes to the type of content that we watched growing up, I know that was one of your questions, but it got me mm -hmm. really nostalgic about, you know, why I'm in this business. And yeah. one of the things that I really, really loved as a child, maybe because that was my only option, but my parents really were they, they had a really, their focus on watching content that had meaning. Mm -hmm. So whether it was old films, even if they were, you know, like old, they allowed us to watch a lot of old Hollywood films. And a lot of those were musicals like The King and I and Brigadoon or, you know, which isn't a musical, something like Ben-Hur. So actually, if you go down the list of the hundred greatest films of all time, we've probably, the age appropriate ones as a kid, we meet. I mean, when I go down that list, I've seen all of them and that's... Yeah. 
also, you know, also when you're in Asia in the 90s and late 80s, like it was a lot of the stuff that you were watching. It's what was available, right, on DVD mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. at one point VHS. So mm -hmm. it would be E.T. I remember the first time I saw E.T., you know, I was pretty young. I was like a little and I just remember the effect that it had on me was mm -hmm. uh, it was just so profound. And we actually watched that in a theater in Tokyo when mm. I was a little kid. And oh my goodness, like it, yeah. it, I was so emotional that my mom and dad were actually like, is she okay? I was like, he died, he died and he came back to life. Like it had so much meaning to me. Mm -hmm. And that now, of course, when we watched films, you know, I remember I watched before, this is when I was a, a teenager, we watched Top Gun. And mm -hmm. I didn't know the names of any of the actors or anything. Like my parents have never been into that kind of stuff. It was never like idolizing any specific actors. So when I moved to, how did I get into this business? I actually was in Dallas and someone scouted me to be a model. And mm -hmm. that's not something my parents are very much not about looks. To them, my mom would always say, I, I want you girls to be smart, not beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so when I got this contract, it was kind of like, you know, my parents will always be supportive, but it did take me from my scholastic path and mm -hmm. started modeling and traveling a lot. But I think part of me, you know, I'm really grateful for that experience because I had some great experiences and some not so great experiences mm -hmm. <laughs> as a model. And I think sure. a lot of that is something that's, you know, we've, as a society, especially with the Me Too, you know, the Me Too revolution has put more protections in place than mm -hmm. what we had when we were, you know, younger. But yeah, so from, from modeling, I, I was coming out to Los Angeles and I was shooting and there a photographer his name is race and he's amazing and he's still a really amazing photographer and he shot uh this picture of me and um a casting director saw it and her name is mm. Frances Maisler and she's cast a lot of really big projects and I get this my agency gets this call like can she come in and read for this movie called Memoirs of a Geisha mm. and I read the book and I had, you know I had really long black hair at that time I had never acted before. And I was like, so they send me this, they fax, fax, they fax this monologue to my agency and I see it. And it's, it's one of the monologues from the movie. And mm -hmm. they were like, do you Japanese? And I do. So I memorized mm -hmm. it and I went in and at that time, I think I was 19 or something. And I read it for Francine and she's like, were you coached? And I said, what does coached means? And she's mm -hmm. like, that you're very natural. You're very good. And she sent it to Spielberg and the the notes we got, I didn't know who Spielberg was. At that time, he was going to direct it. I think it mm -hmm. was on hold or something. And they were, you know, he said, she's really good. We really like her, but the movie wasn't going. But from that, Francine told my agents, you know, this, this girl should act. There's not a lot of Asian actresses that mm -hmm. are able to, you know, show this type of emotion. And that's, I, I'm really touched that she was she was so kind. She was so gentle in the audition. And this was my first audition I had ever been on for film and TV. And I didn't really know what I was doing. But from that, you know, I didn't decide to act right there. It wasn't like I was like, I'm going to be an actor because I, I didn't really understand the concept of acting. Like it was just 
So I understood it for stage, right? Because when I was a kid, I had done stage plays and stage musicals and stuff. But for film and TV, it just didn't resonate yet. So, but that did definitely encourage me to, you know, start taking acting classes. And I wasn't ready to act yet. So I started taking acting classes at the Larry Moss studio, which I still, I, I would suggest any actors, film people in general to check out Larry Moss. He is one of the most amazing teachers that have ever lived. And, you know, I've learned so much from him, but yeah, so that's kind of, and then from there I started getting into commercials and hmm. started doing a lot of commercials, which gave me a lot of onset onset practice. And then from there I got a manager and I started going out for a little bit roles and, you know, and I'm, I, I almost would say about my career humbly, like I've been very grateful that I've worked a lot. I'm that actor that's probably been in a lot of things you've seen, especially commercials or a little bit parts in big films and, you know, mm -hmm. TV shows. I'm very grateful to be working, but not that anyone would be like, I know you that much, you know, like, but as an, you know, person of color, like you take what you can get. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've always been like, thank you, you know, and I will do the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm to show up on time. I will do the work. And I'm so grateful for everyone that's hired me. And but at the same time, you know, there's always been little bits of trauma that's been mm -hmm. throughout business of, you know, whether it's you get up for a role that was written as an Asian and you test for it, you go to network for a big TV show and they end up casting a Caucasian person mm -hmm. and the hit you get internally, it becomes you didn't study hard enough or mm -hmm. you weren't in your moment and mm -hmm. you think it's you. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, for two weeks, you think, God, what am I doing wrong? Like, where did I go wrong? I got to network. Did I not want it enough? You know? And there's been a lot of those for me and mm -hmm. where, you know, there's, there's, I'm not going to name the show, but there's a very specific show that's been on for like 15 years. And I went to network for, and they like, they love you. And then they cast a white girl with, mm -hmm. she still has kind of a bit of an Asian name, which is interesting, mm -hmm. but, and she's, she's a really good actress. So I do see why they cast her, but there's been a lot of that. And there's also been roles where, you know, I started realizing had little cliches that I wasn't comfortable with, you know, along with the gratitude and all the wonderful people I've worked with and all the fantastic casting directors that have, you know, pushed me for things. And, you know, the amazing, I've worked with a lot of really amazing actors, you know, I've learned from, but along the way, and I don't know if I should parlay into this, should I? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Especially with everything that's going on right now with Asians life, Asian lives matter. You know, this mm -hmm. movement is the parts of me that realize that kept my head down or took roles that I wasn't a hundred percent sure I should take, or even turned down roles that I wish they never had created in the mm -hmm. first place, you know, and there, you know, just to talk about how I got into writing was mm -hmm. I used to take scripts, right? And and rewrite the way I thought the script should go, <laughs> rewrite it just to see, you know, and there was a couple of times I actually went in and I was like, can I say my own dialogue? Can I change this? Because, you know, there's this one show that was on for a while and the lead actress is amazing, this uh, Caucasian actress, she's really funny. And, but the role, the second lead was an Asian 
woman and she was like her sidekick kind of, but she had a, a stealing problem. She stole a lot. And I, I was supposed to test for this role and they were like, so they want to test you, you know, here's your, you know, here's your quote, da, 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 da. And, and I was like, is there a way that they can take out the part that she has a theft issue? She's Asian and she has a, she's, she steals, she's a klepton, like, you know, it, it didn't sit right with me. So I turned that down and I didn't test for it because it felt, and that was, I think that was like, you know, maybe eight, nine years ago, it kind of made me realize that, you know, even if you get roles, what is the memory or what is the stamp you're leaving mm. on culture, right? Pop mm. culture in general. Mm -hmm. And am I willing to be the person that leaves that, you know, mark mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. all my gratitude, you know? So yeah, that's... Yeah. You, you bring up so many important points there. The first one on representation and just how scarce it is, you know, that casting director, she mentioned how not only there's a scarcity in terms of the supply, there's not many Asian actors that have the training, the, right? And then also on the, well, I guess, sorry, that's the, the, the yeah. And, but the, also on the roles, right? You mentioned there's not that many roles and the roles that you see even, they come with a certain trade-off. Right. I, I remember recently I watched this old Nick Cage film called The Family Man. And in it, I believe like I believe it was Don Cheadle. Oh. He was okay. in that film. I, I think when I and then I went to look at the IMDB, it was his mm. one of his first credits. And why it caused me to research into this role is because Don Cheadle played a no-name character that was a black man who robbed a convenience store. Mm. And that's the store, that's it, that's, the, that's his role. But it's Don Cheadle, right? Like who he became, of course he wasn't Don Cheadle then. Right. But for Don Cheadle to become Don Cheadle, right. he took this role, mm -hmm. right? And I'm sure, I'm sure many actors yes. do this, right? Yes. But especially then actors of color, they mm -hmm. get even more pigeonholed in these type of roles. And so it is an interesting conversation to be had mm -hmm. in terms of where is the balance? Because on one hand, mm -hmm. you need to make a living. You need to pay the rent, put food on the table, raise your family, and that's what you're given. And then mm -hmm. on the other hand, right, there are these potential issues with the role because I think that's one thing I have to acknowledge that you are thoughtful about thinking about, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of what does this mean? Because doing this role, especially the power of media, of story, of inter the entertainment industry, it does leave a lasting cultural impact. So for you to realize it, I think that's very important because, you know, on the flip side of things right now, like you see this craze of unscripted reality shows that are just the more insane the better right mm -hmm. and the manifestation of that is like almost i think in one extreme fox news it's become like a reality <laughs> show and so i guess and i'm glad that you did transition to your you know start your origin 
of how you became a writer just by fixing kind of lines here and there. And my question that then is, what made you decide to pursue it more intently and uh, more seriously? Because that is a lot already to be trying to go with the acting and then also now pairing it with the writing. Right. To answer your question, there was a time when I was just acting. I'm going to be the biggest, you know, I'm like, I'm just, my focus, I would sure. relationships second fiddle. Yeah. Because it's like you had to, right? So, and I really enjoyed that because there's something that you get, there's a lot of self-reflection and, you know, you work on yourself a lot when you're in acting class and when you're working on these roles. I think the transition for me was something that, you know, I've always wanted to write. I've always written stuff. You know, I've written like when I was younger, I would write short stories and submit it under pseudonames, and, mm. you know, that kind of thing. And I, I always was trying to hide. I, it's, it was hard for me to be myself in writing a lot of things. And then, you know, I had this experience with this movie that actually came out and the end product, you know, is not something that I would say like, oh, this was, you know, where I wanted the story to go or even the, the actually aesthetics of the story or the the design of the, of the film. But the process of, of co-writing it was something that really I really enjoyed and I appreciate the producers giving me an opportunity to do that. So it was mm. this movie called American Romance and you know, sometimes they say it's more about the process than it is the final product. And I kind of look at that film as boot camp for me. So basically mm. they had a script and it was not something that they could, there were produced, there were finances, financiers that were interested in the, you know, the concept of the story and the location of the story, but they couldn't find a writer that was getting the hook enough and getting the story congealing the story enough for actors to sign on. So I, I went in for one of the roles just as a casual meet and greet. And I had read the script and I basically was like, okay, this thing has some stuff that could be changed in my mind. And I had been in this process of not only, you know, just for fun, like writing my own spec scripts off of different shows, but also written different, like little short films. And a couple of them got, you know, cool reviews like Palm Springs uh, Film Festival. This one that I wrote, I co-wrote as well. And I was like, oh, I can do this. And then I, I wrote a few other ones. And, you know, I, I someone's like, I want to fund that. And that kind of thing. So I, I started doing that, but for American Romance, they're like, we're looking for a writer to rewrite this film. And so I just basically took initiative and rewrote the first, you know, I think the first like mm. the first act of it and took like three days and just hammered it out. And I turned it in. It was much different than what they were thinking at the time, but then it was random. They were like, oh, this writer, like you write. And they were like, we love it. Can we, we want to hire you to revamp this film. So I took you no know, five weeks or whatever, and I redid it. And then when we were immediately, we went up to uh, Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. And as we were shooting, I learned all about, you know, doing color drafts and we were writing the film as we went. It was a very low budget film. It had really great, lovely people in it, but there were, there were issues on the film. There were creative differences between certain of the parties, but all of that, I mean, it was a beautiful mess, disastrous mess, but in the same way, like in the same token, like I learned how to write 
on on a timeline, right? And also how to communicate with actors that wanted things changed mm-hmm. and how to, you know, try to make it work for a budget. So writing for the budget. And I just threw threw myself into that. And I had a little role in it, nothing, nothing to write home about. But just the experience in itself was something that was really inspiring for me because from start to finish, and then it went, you know, it, it was it was distributed again. You know, I'm not gonna say that that's the film that I'm like, you know, I we I also learned something else is like as a writer, you have no control over the set design. You have no control over how the director is going to direct your writing. Mm-hmm. And that's why I also have wanted to become more of a look at things from more of a producer's standpoint, because then I might have artistic create, you know, creative control as well. So yeah. that experience taught me a lot, you know, and I'm really grateful for the people that brought me into that. Mm. Um, yeah, I like what you said there because it was like a culmination of things that got you to that point. And mm-hmm. then when you were found yourself in that situation, though, as you were saying, there is a script that you didn't, you saw some room for improvement and you took that initiative. And I think that's really key too, because it sounds like just in the few things that you've recapped about your experience in the industry, you were presented with a certain opportunity at some mm-hmm. point at different points, but then you really took initiative to make it the most, right? Whereas I think other folks, they may see that and just take it for granted or wait, right? And I think that perspective or that attitude of taking initiative really, yeah, then because otherwise you could, it, it makes sense then how you've made these transitions because otherwise if you try to explain it just by saying, oh, you've been a model, you've been an actor, you've been a writer, you're like, oh, how does one do that? It doesn't seem to connect. Right. You know, I also wanted to say, you know, there's, for me, I have a desire to understand humanity and also to Mm -hmm. try to figure out how to do different parts of this industry. Filling these little positions, for example, I've also tried to, create little projects that had meaning on my own dime, right? I did this little short film. It was like a little PSA for Glisten, and it was about bullying for gay gay lesbian children, like teenagers. And it was something that really meant a lot to me because, you know, I learned a lot also in that process of creating this little teeny project that was 30 seconds long, but from the producer's standpoint, and then, you know, talking about it to different outlets. And that informed my confidence in writing and in acting and in producing, even those little teeny things, right? These little projects that you do. And, you know, I just wanted to talk about when I started getting into like a little bit longer form and bigger writing projects was I started seeing, as we've been talking about this whole, right. For especially, you know, it's, it's easy for me to see the problem for other people. I I like to focus on other people more than I like to focus on myself. Yeah. But one thing, yeah, it's like, that's why writing suits me well. And sometimes, you know, I, I prefer to be behind the camera than in front of the camera. It's I'm very private in that way, but I'm working on that, you know, I'm working on that. But there were, there was a time that I just noticed that there were a lot of roles that 
I saw for Asian men that did not fully show the complexity that I felt needs to be out there. And this was mm-hmm. maybe six, seven years ago. And I was talking to my, my, my dad, my biological dad, and he was saying, you know, you need to create something where Americans can see how strong we are. We're the strongest men in the world. <laughs> We're stronger than anyone. We handle everything. Do you know how much I've handled in my life? And I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> I don't know, but I don't. But, and he had a good point. And he's like, you know, he's like, not perfect. I'm not perfect. He's like, mm-hmm. just interesting, right? So mm-hmm. he actually said, go through the Asian myth. Why don't you go through the Chinese myths? You need to understand more about culture. You need to understand more about Chinese culture. So I went through all these Chinese myths. It's, he gave me this book and it had all the Chinese myths in there. And I found one and it, it encompassed so much about the human condition and so much. And all the lead characters were pretty much male, male, like gods. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was like, you know, hmm, this would be an interesting project to try to explore. And when I went back into the myth, like there's a, a, a current story about it, but you know, it's much more light and kind of jokey. But when you go back into the actual myth, it's complex. You understand their fatal flaws, you know. And so I started writing a story around this and it was it got a lot of heat and I was able to sell that project. And from that, I got my agent at UTA and I got my attorney. We we actually sold it to a studio. We sold the project, the TV show to a studio and that was really exciting for me. But the one thing I know is that the amount of research that I did and how I realized that I'm just an actor, right? And like, nobody knows me really. And they're not gonna be like, oh, we wanna buy your stuff. But so I was like, I have to make this so good. I have to make this so clear and or else no one's gonna pay attention to it. And mm-hmm. I realized that as an Asian, you know, creator, female creator, I have to work extra hard to be, you know, even accepted. And what was interesting is when they were pitching the show and I'd go in for these meetings, a couple times executives would be like, oh, we thought you were going to be a guy. Like they didn't know mm. my name. When after they had read the project, they were like, oh, we thought a man wrote so like her. It's so like, it has so much testosterone. And I was like, mm. it, you know, it's funny how we get these stereotypes of, someone that can write heavy action or in, you know, uh, suspense must be a male writer. And that for mm-hmm. me was kind of like, I didn't know if I should take that as a compliment or an ins not an insult, but kind of like, you know, like, okay, things need to change if the way we look at things are from those stereotypes, you know? Yeah. So that is a, a very important point to make. And yeah, I think, you know, as a female writer, you understand both sides because for the most part, you're dealing in very male dominated, maybe you could say world or industry or stories, right? And I think it's also an interesting balance how you mentioned that it was your dad who encouraged you to write these stories of strong Asian male leads. Because, yeah, that's something that I be- believed in. That's kind of why we connected on the project mm-hmm. that we're working on. But it's an interesting phenomenon, right? Because on one hand, there is this whole thing with like the Me Too movement. So it's like right. you need to uplift, right, female creators and voices and 
underrepresented. And it's not like it shouldn't be a duty necessarily, but it's a, it's, it's a thing that just should be, and it's not, so we need to change it. Right. But then on the other hand, also, you have this thing with representation with Asian culture where like, I think both it's the male and the female representation in Asian culture in mainstream media is so warped and weird and not what it should be because, because I I know, I, and I think it's because all those stories have been greenlit and paid for and created by Mm -hmm. typically folks who are not from our culture. Right. So it's been, it's so important. Like there's so much work to do. Like we're, we're, we're in terms of like the Asian representation of Asian culture in the mainstream, it's so backwards Mm -hmm. for everyone, (laughs) right. For the women, Mm -hmm. for the men, for Mm -hmm. all of it. Talk a little bit about as you now are more writing, what are some of the things that you've learned through experience that weren't what you expected going in? Oh gosh, this is a funny, a funny answer. And I have to be really uh, candid about it. So one thing I realized coming from an actor's point of view is Mm. actors are, you know, and I, and I want to say this to all actors, you know, we're very lucky. We show up if you're working on a studio film or a commercial or TV show, whatever you, you sit in your trailer and you then, you know, put, get makeup put on you, you get your clothes put on you. You might have to wait in the cold for a second. And then you go home, you read your lines, you see, you find your light, you hit your mark and you do your thing and then you go. I realized that, you know, writers, it's kind of, it's not the most glorified position. You're treated differently. So I know mm-hmm. There's different hurdles as a writer. You know, one thing I've realized is how to, that I wasn't expecting was how much you have to let go of your ego when it comes to creating things. But then you mm-hmm. also have, and we've talked about this, Jason, but you mm-hmm. also have to be confident right? You know, you may know exactly what you want to do. And if you come across too confident, you sound like you're not uh, flexible. Mm -hmm. So it's this fine balance between not sounding like you have no idea what's going on, which sometimes Mm -hmm. is an easy place for me to fall into as a female writer, perhaps, because I liked, you know, it's like maybe I'm trying to, to be as open as possible. And, you know, I've also done these, you know, workshops with, you know, the WGA and it's like all learning how to work as a team. And so it's like kind of balance, you know, it's this great stew and you're trying to put all the elements in you're trying to like all I know I want when I come from an uh, honest place is for the product to be the best it can be. And for us all to work together to make that project the best it can be. And, this can be difficult. It can be a lot harder because while by by the time you get to the set, a lot of those kinks hopefully have been ironed out. But when you're working on a writing project, there's sometimes it's not ever quite getting where you want it to be. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of different things that can happen and just being open to that and trying to be solutions based, I suppose has been, Mm -hmm. and staying positive as well Mm -hmm. is something that I've been learning a lot as a writer. Yeah. I mean, the job is already so difficult, right? As a writer. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was like, as a writer, you don't have that much Um, control. 
um, over over certain parts of like the aesthetics you were mentioning. But I I, I also want to say like it, I guess it depends on the project and how it goes because I feel in some senses no one really has control in this industry. Like a lot of this industry is out of anyone's control because it takes so much effort to get a project actually made. Like every movie that gets made is kind right. of a miracle in a certain way. And then in addition mm -hmm. to all these, that the job is already so complex, you're also having to represent and to speak up for like the Asian characters or Asian stories or the Asian culture. How do you, how have you found ways to balance that in a constructive and productive mm -hmm. manner? That's a really great question. You know, I actually um, I had a project just uh, this week, actually, that someone brought to me and really great team of creators. They want me to do a rewrite on it. And their concern really was that there is a, there are a lot of cliches and there are a lot of stereotypes in their film. And mm. mainly when it has to do with who the bad guys are, right? Mm. Yakuza, they're bad, right? And it, it, the one thing that I feel with everything that's going on this year with, you know, with this revolution of, you know, it, it, it's, I think that I feel more confident saying, no, the white guy cannot be the savior. He cannot mm. be the savior. Maybe he himself has flaws and there needs to be a little humility. How do we make this character less of the savior, more like a partner, right? Mm. A partner. And, you know, possibly he's growing up with this Asian family, or maybe there's something that can make him less heroic and more of of part of the problem and part of the solution just like everybody else mm. i used to have a hard time saying that and when you're trying to get you know i've done quite a few you know non-credited rewrites and sometimes they'll say oh we want an asian will you you know do you want this rewrite like we want an asian individual to, 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 you know, touch it up so they can say that someone Asian rewrote mm -hmm. it. I think that the more we all band together as a, as a community and be, continue to stand up, it makes it easier in these micro conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, I am confident saying this doesn't present and represent the Japanese culture in the way that I feel comfortable rewriting this. Mm -hmm. And they can't say, oh, you know, so then they, they'll come back and they'll say, okay, oh, we should change all this, you know. So I feel there's more backing now. There's, it's mm. just getting there where it's like little things are happening where it's like it goes without saying certain roles shouldn't be this way. Mm -hmm. It goes without saying you should have an Asian actor in this role and there doesn't need to be a reason for it. And they don't have mm -hmm. to be bad. They don't have to have some kind of like, they're not going to end up the villain later. Like mm -hmm. this is, I, I do have hope that this is slowly going to start happening. Mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, I was just, just to go to the acting. Cause I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't really been acting so much, but I have gone in for a couple things recently. And mm. there was a project I went in for 
the like a couple weeks ago and it was an Asian mother, but she has a drinking problem, right? She loses her kids because she has a drinking problem. And I was like, so why does she have to have a drink? I mean, is it necessary to put her in that, make her look like this? Is it necessary? You know, it's, it's things that I feel like are still like, you know, putting down, putting down our culture that isn't necessary to make a good riveting story, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And more of the light that's shone on it. People will be like, yeah, we can just have, she can just be a mother that lost her child because of someone else's wrongdoing. She doesn't have to also be drunk, you know, because mm-hmm. her dad owns a bar. Like, I don't know. It's these little things. And like, if you're going to bring an Asian uh, character to this, maybe present their plight without making them also have a sinister quality to them. Not that, not, not that drinking is always sinister, but you know what I mean? It's you, you bring up two things there that I want to touch upon is Mm -hmm. one is that I think it really, they go hand in hand. One is there's a scarcity problem, right? Right. Because you don't see, you know, I've seen these statistics, like even though Asians are in the US 6% of the population, we there are only like one to 2% of the lead roles on film or TV, right? So there's this huge scarcity problem. And even the lead roles, I sometimes question, like, are they really the lead roles, right? And so then that goes into like the other thing you said about when these roles are there, like the, the character and the story, and I think what you said there, you know, some, you know, if, if you just said it in a soundbite, it might, I might say to you, May, but like, you're being so unfair. Why can't she, why do you have to show um, an Asian mother be perfect, right? But I, what you said, I also can understand, like, I can just go like a couple layers. Like, did they, is the drinking problem really important to the story or character? Like, right, that needs to all fall in place. Like, it needs to make sense because you can say that with white characters or black characters, you know, you show them having problems and stuff like that. And that's okay. But also it's like really some usually, well, in the best scenario, it's really well woven into the story and there's a arc Mm -hmm. to the story and there's meaning to Mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that all goes hand in hand where it's like, yeah, this, this whole thing that we're trying to solve, because like, how do you get there? It has to be someone who understands the culture, who can write to that character, who can make that uh, character three-dimensional, full of life. Right. Like, so even if she's going through a tragic circumstance, you still see the humanity, the connection. She's not stereotyped, right? right? All these right. things, right. which, yeah, it's like a whole host of things um, that need to happen because certainly there are not enough, because we're, a lot of times when we talk about representation, we're thinking of like the actors and the stars, which is true for sure. But also it's the producers, it's the writers, it's the directors, it's the executives, it's the hair and makeup, it's the lighting, it's everything, right? So it's just to say that a lot of times, like in what you just said too, you said you were hopeful. I'm hopeful too, but I think there needs to be instead of one and then we hold up you know, this one, you know, like light, like crazy rich Asians. Ooh, we have this now. There needs to be thousands, tens of thousands of these projects and opportunities so that we don't have to, so you could have the portrayal of a drunken mother and be, and let be complex, but 
you can also have, you know, whatever else you want, like an Asian yeah. Indiana Jones, an Asian James Bond, uh, right. and you know, a Asian female detective, you know, like whatever, everything and all of it. Right. And so what are you? Right. I think, I think what I, what you just hit on a point that maybe I wanted to underline. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. What were you saying? You wanted to expand upon something? Uh, no. Oh, I wanted to expand just on that. I think that that is the specific point is that if there's more visibility and different mm -hmm. roles, it's not just those, right? So this is, this is a whole person. What I think I bristle against is that when the only guest star on the whole show that you see as Asian has this sinister heart to her and yeah. this character had that, you know, she wasn't a trustworthy person. If you, mm -hmm. if you just have that, now if you have the other checks and balances, right? Like it's, it's the scale is weighed out. Like there's, it's a whole person, like you're saying, and it's really thought out then yes, human beings have flaws and they're beautiful and it's what makes great film and TV. But I think there needs to be both. I think it's a perception issue. If you only see Asians in those roles, that's what people are going to see when yeah, we're walking. And we, and we do have to bring it up because there mm -hmm. is um, a historical connection too, right? The, the Page Act, right? Like that's something mm -hmm. that very few people in the US understand. But the mm -hmm. Page Act like specifically demonized Asian mm -hmm. women, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. people don't understand that. And so if you don't have that historical context, you're like, oh, why is making a villain out of an Asian woman bad? But you need to understand that. And you could say like the counterpoint could be, oh, come on, like take a joke. Why does it have to be so heavy? But it, like we're seeing right now, it does have real world consequences. So it's not right. like we're saying we can't take a joke, but when that's the only thing the only you thing. see yeah. over and over and over again, mm -hmm. right? That's when you're like, hey, we're going to have to talk about it. <laughs> right. I think it also comes down to where you in your if if you are only seen like that as an actor, is that people think this is who you are in real life. But I don't know if that's a specific thing to any any type of ethnicity. I think it's just that's what happens to actors in mm -hmm. general. That you get, yep. you know, and some people are comfortable with that and they play with it and they go all the way with it. You know, they always play villains and it's, so there is that part too, but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's been so long, like one kind of thing, right? So like when you think of a white male lead, you think like Superman and superhero, like James Bond, like this kind of stuff. Right. And they can live that. Right. But whereas right. like the other versions of that, that's what we need to see more of because I like it or not, entertainment, film and TV, pop culture, it has like a huge influence on society and people and how we connect with each other. And so, yeah, that's why I think when I got to know you and even as I continue to get to know you, like your background of being very international, I think is very important because there's not enough of that perspective. And I think one thing is that if Americans just traveled the world a little bit more, things would be in a much better place. But the reality is that like I read some statistics, like 
most Americans don't even have a passport, so they've never been outside of the country. And I think probably a lot of Americans have probably not even been outside of their state. Right, um, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's also like if you go to the Midwest and, you know, I have some brothers in college in the Midwest and it, it's such a wonderful, friendly place. Like people are great mm -hmm. in all states. I mean, every state, I mean, United States is so beautiful. And yeah. People are, for the most part, all trying their best with what they know, right? Yep. So if what they know isn't, you know, if, if what they're watching on TV is not, it doesn't show, you know, all this diversity, they're not going to understand and they'll have that fear. And it's, I think that that might be one of the most important things for me in creating content are representing that side too, because it's like these two different cultures meeting each other and you know mm -hmm. like our project that we're working on it's literally about two different cultures that are meeting each other and it's a, based on a true story and it's it's beautiful and it's true mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. need more of those stories going on because it's not like you know yes there are people that do bad very very bad evil things and there's also people that are not doing anything wrong and are you know have terrible things happening to them, but this is happening all over the country and we need to see more of those stories for sure. And one last question, just cause mm -hmm. I'm sure you have things that we know you need to get onto with all this stuff. And even this year that we've been through, what is something that you do for self-care? Cause you're doing a lot of different things and you have a lot of different hats you're wearing. Right. What do you do to take uh, care of yourself? I think a lot of how I stay true to who I am has to do with family. And, you know, I'm a mom, I have a wonderful son and he's the number one thing in my life. Mm -hmm. I think it's also the, you know, the way I take in information and I, I try to limit myself from too much negativity, but also try to stay up. It's like that hard balance of uh, difficult balance of juggling. Like you're like, how much do I get involved and how much can I give back? But how much do I need to take care of myself? And for me, it's, it's, I think it's, it's a schedule thing, right? So I have, I wake up at three in the morning. Like I, I'm a really early riser. People are like, why are you really? texting me? I sleep pretty early. I go to sleep. Wow. Early. Um, okay. <laughs> I'll, I I'll get that. Um, yeah, I wake up. Because I see you responding to emails and texts that all, at all hours. Yeah, at all hours. Yeah, it's it's. I, wow. I mean, I think sometimes I'll remember stuff and I'll get up and I'll I'll text and I'll and I think sometimes people think you know I'm also doing a project where I'm you know trying to get started and you know across the world. So there's a different time, there's a different time zone. But I think you know exercise and you know staying in touch with spirituality, staying in touch with family and friends and really trying to, you know, stay grounded and just have fun. Like I just have yeah. so much fun with my my son and it's and my, you know, my partner. So it's like we're we're just trying to do the best we can each day, you know. And yep. uh, I also do a lot of exercise. I'm a big exerciser. I also, you know, I have like a little mini gym in my place. So Oh nice. I do that, That's huge. That yeah. early, early morning <laughs> before my son wakes up. And um, yep. Yeah, I think between like three and eight, I get, you know, I have five hours, so I can get a lot of stuff done. So, oh my so then I can concentrate wow. on him when he wakes up. But Okay, cool. <laughs> so yeah, I learned another thing about you there. That's 
amazing. Three o'clock. Wow. <laughs> so that by the something. way, these random texts, it's not me staying up all night. It's, it's I've actually been to sleep and I've woken oh, up. My God. Okay, good to know. What time do you wake up, Jason? <laughs> I am. What not time a do you wake up? I know that's a person. I'm I'm not a natural morning person. I I like to probably no. stay up later, but I like the morning. See, that's so uh -huh. odd. I don't like the, I don't really mm -hmm. like the darkness and the evening. I like the morning. I like the sun. Like when I do ever get up for a sunset and in that early morning, I feel great. I love it. But it's so it's so rare that I actually do that. So it's something that this past year I've been trying to change. So trying to get up earlier. So now I get up at about seven, but sometimes like eight. But it's because I could go to bed later. And so that's something that I've been realizing I need to change because I do really enjoy those morning hours when the day is just starting and the sun is just coming and you see that change. I love that feeling. I love the air during that time. I love everything about it. But just it's very hard for me to get up. All right. Well, May, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your story, for walking us through your journey in entertainment. I look forward to seeing all your projects and to continuing to work with you on ours. Take care. Good luck, Jason. I'm so happy to be Guys, definitely. Okay. All right. Bye. Talk soon. We'll see you Bye, May. Bye. And that wraps up episode 11 of The Linsider. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and help provide your rating and your review. This really helps the podcast in the podcast charts and rankings and gets more people to listen to the podcast. And ultimately, that is what I want, is for more people to join us in this community, in this conversation. Okay, I will see you all next week. Thank you so much. Take care, stay safe.